The world's longest-running comedy music concert series is back. Hello, MarsCon people! Those were enthusiastic woos. MarsCon 2023 is taking place March 10th through 12th at the Hilton Minneapolis St. Paul Mall of America Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. Coming up here, I was gathering up all my supplies, you know, Fuji's, Golden Deliciouses, Red Deliciouses, Granny Smith's, but I was able to make it to Minnesota after compiling my Minneapolis list. This year's event will have performances by Robbie Ellis, Klingon Pop Warrior, Nuclear Bubble Wrap, The Odd Ditties, Holy Bongwater, Regdar and the Fighters, The Great Luke Ski, TV's Kyle and Linzilla, Insane Ian, Steve Goody, Il Nay, Yao Meme, and this year's music guest of honor, Bonnie Gordon. I'm working on six projects, cause I can't focus on one, with everything all at once, nothing never gets done, some say it's a problem, something wrong with my brain, Registration for a weekend badge is $70. To pre-register and for more info on MarsCon, visit MarsCon.org. I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. We are continuing our look at 60 years of Doctor Who. This week, we are taking a look at the third Doctor, John Pertwee. And, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Pertwee is probably one of the doctors I have the least amount of experience on in terms of classic era doctors. Crap, I was hoping you were gonna be the expert this week. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but, you know, my knowledge of classic who is, is, is minimal at best to begin with. My knowledge of Doctor Three is. He was the one that started the regular use of the sonic screwdriver, and he, and he, um, he reverses the, the polarity of the neutron flow. Yeah, I mean, he he made that phrase, and now like reverse the polarity is kind of a trope phrase in science fiction. So you got Doctor Who to blame for that, most specifically John Pertwee. <laughs> uh, he he's got a car. He's got a couple of cars. He's got a car named Bessie. He's got the Who Mobile. Pertwee himself liked cars. And he wanted I mean, to drive he, a lot of cars. He like cars. And he wanted to drive a lot of cars. So we get Doctor Who driving a lot of cars. But he didn't really have much of a choice because it's not like he could drive the TARDIS. So let's yeah, bring up, they let's bring... they decided to do the weird thing and was like, "What if we do Doctor Who but without the TARDIS?" All right, so we need to pick up where we left off with Second Doctor Patrick Troughton. So we get to the War Games, which was the final story of the Troughton era, which he faced off against a Time Lord called the War Chief, where. The Doctor and his companions are on a world. They think it's Earth, but it turns out it has every army in U.S. history on it. And the War Chief has transported all of the armies from human history onto this planet to help another race 
learn all of humanity's military secrets to make invasion easier. The doctor, he's in over his head. He cannot stop this from happening. He has no choice but to call in the Time Lords. He does so. They take care of the situation. But in doing so, he is willingly giving himself up to the Time Lords because he ran away. We know this. He stole a TARDIS. He ran away from his people. Now, the Time Lords have a a rule, a rule of non-interference. They observe history. They never interact with it. And the doctor said, screw that. I'm going to interfere. I don't just want to observe I'm going to make my own history with blackjack and hookers. And people telling me how clever I am. Mostly that last thing. But yeah, so once he once give once he gives himself up, they put him on trial. Uh, not that trial. That's Colin Baker. That's coming later. The tr- this trial, <laughs> this trial is of where whether he was justified in leaving uh, Gallifrey or not. So, in his defense, he says, "Hey, there's a lot of evil in the universe." And I've been fighting them. Hey, this is a Dalek. I've been fighting him. This is a Cyberman. I've been fighting him. This is a Yeti. And these are other things. And I've been fighting them. And we should be fighting the evils of the universe. And the Time Lords are like, yeah, but that would take, like, you know, effort and stuff. And we're kind of lazy bastards. So, nah. But but they come up to the, the Time Lords have come to the conclusion that. Yeah, there's evil in the universe, but they uh, seem to mostly attack Earth. And it looks like you've been to Earth a lot. So uh, we're going to let you keep doing what you're doing. But we're going to exile you to planet Earth. We are going to take the TARDIS away from you. And uh, on top of that, uh, we are going to kill you. Because you are going to be forced to regenerate. Because, let's be real, that was a death sentence. They wanted him to change his face. Time Lords can really only do that upon death. As far as I'm aware. Uh, exit the potato, potato. Exit the black and white era. We are now in color. So, yes, Doctor Who is now in color. We have a new Doctor in John Pertwee. And he's stuck on Earth with a non-functioning TARDIS. And uh, the Doctor has joined up with Unit. Yes, we get to talk about Unit. Originally referred to as the United Nations Intelligence Task Force in the classic era. In the modern era, it is called the Unified Intelligence Task Force. Unified The United Nations got a little bit iffy about them using the name. Yeah. Although they haven't edited that out of the old episodes, so... And how did UNIT come together? UNIT is actually a holdover from the Second Doctor era. The Second Doctor, as I mentioned, the Yetis, he took on the Yetis and their leader, the Great Intelligence. If you're familiar with Modern Who, you kind of know he was the guy that was played by Richard E. Grant. But he's an older enemy of the Doctor's. We we got a low key in here. I'm I'm happy. Yeah. 
We got a Loki. But he wasn't played by Richard E. Grant then. He only played for the modern era. But anyway. So, fighting the, great in- <laughs> fighting the great intelligence and the yetis, he, the doctor, the second doctor, encounters then Colonel Lethbridge Stewart, Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart. And as a result of this encounter, Lethbridge Stewart and the governments of the world form unit to be the official defense force against intergalactic invasions and other uh, unexplained phenomena. Honestly, it's always been more like unit is just there to keep an eye on the doctor, which I think was the joke among the fandom that they kind of just brought into the series when the, you know, elevated fanboys took over in the modern era. To the point where a member of UNIT is an elevated fanboy, or fangirl, I should say. Yeah. Uh, Osgood. Uh. <laughs> I, I miss Osgood. Please bring back Osgood. Anyway, so this was also partially done. Uh, we've talked about Doctor Who being notoriously cheap and making alien sets for on a seemingly weekly basis is very expensive. If we just have Earth and regular sets, we don't need to do that. So let's uh, let's keep the Doctor on Earth for budgetary reasons. I don't know what is all that expensive about a quarry. I mean, we have a quarry this week. Yeah. Also, they were taking a page out of another uh, British-English sci-fi show. Kiki, have you ever heard of a show called Quatermass? No, never heard of it. Of course I've heard of Quatermass. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, because... I don't know a lot about Quatermass, but my knowledge of Quatermass is scientists helps government organization fight aliens. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, it's a little bit. And of course, a lot of the Doctor Who actors appeared on various iterations of the Quatermass story, um, including when they redid the most recent version because like David Tennant was in that version. <laughs> but, I mean, there's a long running joke that England only has like 15 actors. Yeah. And then they have to come over here and take our jobs. We have our own actors. Stop doing. It. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm fine with it. Um, but the, the thing is though, is that, it's kind of just the basis of most sci-fi, no matter where you are, though. Mm. You can kind of see bits of it in a, a lot of sci-fi over here as well. You know, arguably that kind of halfway what X-Files was doing. I think I think most of the grounding of the third Doctor really was just budgetary concerns for a while. Mm. Uh BBC really did just want to keep them in the studio a lot more than they had been. You can really see it in this episode because 
about half of it is just them in like you know somebody's random house set you know and not even that they're in a random house set and then a random blue screen effect for a different room yeah the director of this one i i found out in my research just really liked blue screen because it was brand new technology for tv that they had just gotten and it was mostly because they had just done the transition for color (laughs) so it had been available for film for a while but being able to use it as a television special effect was still relatively new because of the availability of transition to color And so he was really loving the novelty of being able to use these blue screen effects. So we get so many absolutely pointless blue screen effects in this episode. Like they're in a house and the husband is attacked. And then you see the wife in a random blue screen in a room turning around. Like, was there not enough room you could use? Any time that they had, like, a shot where it needed to be out the window instead of using just a painted backdrop or or whatever that the BBC would have had on hand, he decided to use a blue screen. And, of course, the technology was not quite there. Or This is, this is 1971, so we're not quite there yet. Yeah, and also they didn't quite know how to do it correctly. So like the there is are, yeah. If if you've ever tried to do it, you know, the, the technology is so easily available for everybody, but if you've ever tried to do it like at home on your computer and stuff, you know that there are things to be considered like um you know, the field of depth and, you know, how big the image is and things like that. And there are just these little things where, like, they use, like, an image that would be better in a tight shot for a wide shot or, you know, vice versa, stuff like that. And they don't quite have the matte line smoothed out correctly or the lighting isn't quite right. And, you know, so it's, it's a very obvious kind of early amateur hour with the blue screen and it's sort of endearing. And it's also like new kid with a new toy kind of feel. Like, we just got these, this thing, and I'm going to use it for every shot, damn it. <laughs> yeah. We have to talk one more time. This is the final time we're going to be talking about it. Junking. Now, uh, BBC would stop the junking process in 1975, which means, yeah, a lot of the Pertree era did get junked. Pretty much, in some cases, right after that first airing. like We talked about this before. Reruns were not really profitable. And home media was not really a thing. So, like, who would want to watch a TV show more than once? Who would want to watch every episode of a TV show in one sitting? These were radical concepts. 
that no one thought would ever happen, but which is now commonplace. If they ever figure out how to invent time travel, the first change to the timeline will be some geek scientist being like, I know where I want to go first. And it will not be the old tropes of like, I'm going to go kill Hitler or something like, no, it's going to be some nerd going back to the BBC and being like, I swear to you, if you ever destroy a single bit of footage from this corporation, I will come back and do horrible things to you. Are you, you going to throw away this this reel of an episode? Don't worry. I'll take care of that for you. You can trust me. I'll make sure it's taken care of. And then, you know, into the future here, I found this rare episode. <laughs> no, you, it's just suddenly the change to the timeline will be every BBC archivist is just absolutely terrified of any bit of footage getting scratched or destroyed or messed up in any way you just have like the bbc archival monk force now that just like keeps it as holy record every bit of footage ever recorded by the bbc and nobody knows why and then do but here we have here is where things get interesting because yes other countries were showing doctor who and now the U.S. is showing Doctor Who because the Pertwee era was the first era to ever be shown on American television on PBS. Wasn't as popular, you know. the 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 Tom Baker era would really be the pop the first popular one, but we'll get there when we get there. But the point is, Doctor Who started airing in America with the Pertwee era, but there was also not every country in the world was broadcasting in color. So rather than send these countries a color copy, they would send them a black and white copy. They would just the same color, same process they would do to make the copies for other countries, just using black and white film, black and white tape, and send those out. And when it came to retrieving the episodes, in some cases, the only version of the episodes that were still around were these black and white copies. Uh, as far as I'm aware, all of the episodes have been colorized to the best of the BBC's ability and budgetary limitations to make it as close to the original airing as possible. In some cases, and some of those clips are still on YouTube, they took the black and white film that they had from the other TV studios and combined it with home video recordings of the color film as VCRs were now becoming more prominent in home in homes. And, it don't and who look are good. the early adopters of that tech? Nerds. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they fixed that now, but there are you can still see some of the original versions of it on YouTube of the original attempts to merge the black and white film with the videotape of the color version doesn't look so well. I don't know if the episodes we're talking about, which is going to be Terror of the Autons, was one of those colorized episodes, but it really does look like it. Well, yeah, from what I found was that, yeah, for the home video release, 
the original kind of VHS release, they had to combine uh, a black and white print because they wiped the original um, color print and only kept the black and white in in house and when they put it out on home video they had to find a uh domestic you know like a you know somebody's home video recording and be like can we borrow that <laughs> um but apparently it was a rather high quality for this one uh, unlike some of the other ones, which are slightly less high quality. Um, so this is one of the better ones, but you can still tell. Yeah, I agree with you. So why are we doing Terror of the Autons? Well, we've talked about the Daleks. Talked about the Cybermen. It's time to talk about the third of the biggest villains in the Doctor Who universe. He is the master and you will obey him. I will obey him. Obey. So yes, we are talking about the master. Terror of the Autons was the first appearance of the master played amazingly by the legendary Roger Delgado. This is not the first time that we've seen an evil Time Lord. I've mentioned the War Chief with the Second Doctor. The First Doctor had multiple encounters with the meddling monk. But this was a different take on it. Through his first few episodes, a lot of people compared the relationship between the Doctor and the Brigadier to Holmes and Watson. Well, if you have a Holmes and you have a Watson, you're going to need a Moriarty. And the Master was created to specifically be the Moriarty to the Doctor's homes. The thing is, is that there is a story that in the original kind of elevator pitch for the show, that one of the early sort of ways that Sidney Newman kind of explained how the doctor was to the higher ups at BBC was that he was a sort of Sherlock Holmes figure in that he was always going to be the smartest person around. He was the one that could solve the mystery and figure out what was going on and explain it. And his brain always worked a little bit different. And that the companions were the kind of Watson figure in that they were going to be the audience insert. You know, they were the, the humans that would stand around and go, well, doctor, that's really clever how you did that, you know, and explain it for the children. And so. 
they never really pitched a continuing Moriarty, but that idea of the the Sherlock Holmes ness of it all. My understanding is that it was always kind of there, and then it was kind of dropped, you know, as the show progressed less from an educational thing into this kind of sci-fi adventure thing. But then it came back with the the third doctor. Mm-hmm. Um and like you said, the third doctor evolved into a much more action hero kind of figure. This is a doctor that did karate. <laughs> He did Venusian Aikido. Uh, Yes. And in fact, as a fan, I have been waiting for them to bring back a doctor that will, at the very least, name drop that they know Venusian Aikido. That's something a tenant would do. I I had hoped that it would come up with... uh, With... Capaldi actually I could see it with Capaldi Uh, I had really wanted him to do that and he never did that during his tenure which really made me sad Um, and then I had hoped kind of again that they would maybe surprise us all and and bring it up um, with Jodie Whittaker and because you just fun. didn't expect it, you know, that for her to be fun. the the pertwee, you know. Like, but, like you, you have Tim Shaw making his big boastiest announcements, and then just Jody Bricker going hiya. Yeah, um, but it it never came up there either. Uh, so I'm still kind of waiting for. I think it would be fun to have David Tennant come back and be a little more action hero-y than his first outing. Okay. I don't know what they have planned for the the return. Um, it would also be fun for Chudy to do that. That would be. I don't. Fun. I, I don't know. I don't know what they've got planned for him either. But you know. Um, I I kind of want to return to the sort of action hero doctor, but they wanted a more kind of James Bond figure. They wanted a it Sherlock Holmes kind of <laughs> figure. Well, yeah, I mean, Bessie wasn't exactly an expensive car. <laughs> like, let's just face but it. But it makes sense. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he was very kind of grounded on Earth. He worked with a government agency. He was a little more physical in the fact that he used guns. He, you know, he did martial arts. He did, you know. The bringing on of the the master into this kind of Holmes, Watson, Moriarty dynamic with the three of them was possibly the the saving grace of the third Doctor era. I think they overdid it, though, because the master would end up becoming the main villain of the entire season. 
to the point where Delgado had problems finding work because other studios thought that he was a regular on Doctor Who. And honestly, he should have been more of a regular of Doctor Who. I'm sorry, but one of the reasons why the third Doctor is... I mean, the third Doctor and the sixth Doctor are really where I dip off in Mm. my Doctor Who knowledge. And with the third Doctor, it's really because... It's an adventure in space and time, except we can't do space or time because we've taken the TARDIS away from him, and he's just a dude who sits in in and around London with a government agency, and if something shows up in the area, he'll fight it. Which is kind of not why I want to watch this show. Hmm. I mean, it's the exact opposite of why you want to watch this show. At least with the master, there's a there's a reason for something to end up in the area. Hmm. The master has beef against the doctor. So for the master to constantly show up where the doctor is and start something makes sense. And yeah, we would find out later that they were friends when in their school days and they went down different paths, be going from best friends to bitter enemies. The doctor may or may not have had a crush on the master, depending on where you want to go with that. At least that's what Missy says. I mean, I'm I'm totally down with with the foyer between the, the doctor and the master. I'm okay shipping those two. Uh, I mean, Delgado's master, again, like I said, throughout this season eight, would be the main villain. Every single situation that happened was a direct result of the master, um, a direct result of the master's own interference. Season nine, he would have a couple of appearances, but unfortunately, that was it, as Delgado would unfortunately pass away in 1973 uh, in a terrible car accident. Had he lived, we might be seeing more, but they did retire the master for a little while out of respect to Delgado before bringing him back uh, towards the end of the fourth Doctor's run. And we still have the master as the occasional thorn in the Doctor's side to this day. Yeah, but it really was the master that saved the show because if everything suddenly becomes oh this is another plot of the master you can call that tropey and yeah it is but otherwise how are you going to explain why all of a sudden all these intergalactic threats are picking the tiniest island on this one out of the way planet Mm. I mean it's kind of a joke in the show proper that things somehow keep targeting England. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like why does everything keep targeting the British Isles in general? You know, but at least you can have, why why is it always Cardiff? But, um, but at least you can be like, you know, 
well, it's it's uh, at least now we're in the Victorian era, and at least now we're in the far future, and at least now you know, and sometimes they're in. 1920s New York City and sometimes they're in India and sometimes they're you know like okay yeah it's weird that it keeps happening on earth so much but you can kind of forgive it as a fictional show and we do time travel a lot and occasionally we go to other countries you know but when he's literally stuck in one place and one time why do all these things keep happening there eventually torchwood had an explanation of there there was like you know a specific cosmic reason for things to keep showing up at that one point in cardiff you know whales exist on a rift in time and space who knew <laughs> yeah i mean you have to come up with a reason for, like, okay, why are all the weird things happening here? You have to have your Hellmouth or your, you know, other thing. You have to have your MacGuffin. And eventually, the third Doctor had the MacGuffin of The Master Did It, which fortunately was brilliant. And Roger Delgado is just such a compelling actor to have cast in that role that it could have just been a throwaway thing of, well, there's a rogue time Lord out there. Wonder if we'll ever see him again. And then the audience just went like, yeah, but he was kind of boring and they could have just never had him back. But every scene in this that he's in, you're like, Oh, I want more of that guy. Yeah, he he makes you notice him. He is the most important man in the room. Even with the even with Pertwee in the same shot. Yeah, you're like, "Doctor, can you shut up so we can hear the the interesting villain monologue a little bit?" <laughs> and I just love Delgado holding the tissue compression eliminator like a cigar. Oh yeah. It it's it's such a cool move. And it's basically just like, I'm going to turn you into an action figure with my cigar. <laughs> and again, that came back. Uh, the Sasha Dewan Master has the tissue compression eliminator back. Fun fact, where did it come back first, though? I don't remember. Because it was a really funny way that they brought the idea of the tissue compression eliminator back. <laughs> It was. It had not been mentioned in a very long time, and then they brought it up as a joke in a Red Nose Day special, and it was the uh, the one with David Tennant and Catherine Tate, where it's the uh, her character from her show, uh, Lauren Cooper. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, the Lauren Cooper joke. About. And uh, and he's her English teacher, and she quotes Shakespeare to him. Yeah. And cause... at the end, he pulls out the sonic screwdriver, and it turns out that there's a tissue compression eliminator in the sonic screwdriver. Uh, and he turns her into a tiny little action figure of Rose Tyler. Of Rose Tyler. Um, and it is such a bizarre wink and a nod insider. 
Doctor Who fandom joke because when that happened, they had not brought that that yeah. little bit of tech up for like decades in the show. Yeah, we had seen the master come back. John Sim had already played the master. Yeah, but but that little bit of tech had not been seen in the show for just ages. Yeah. And then suddenly it comes and people are like, well, that was weird that he just turned her into an action figure. And then all of the old school fans had to be like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> there was a time in the show where turning people into action figures was literally a thing. <laughs> it happened all the time. <laughs> and it's just the reaction on Tumblr of people going like, they did what now? <laughs> like, no, no, no. It used to be a thing. The master would just show up and turn people into action figures. Classic who was weird. <laughs> Classic was weird. who was weirder than you remember. Like, so just finding all the new fans going like, the master used to just turn people into action figures. Like, yeah, yeah, it's the thing. <laughs> Uh, also, we get a. This is also the 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 first appearance of a new companion. As we, uh, Caroline John, who played the previous season's companion Liz Shaw, uh, left the show. Honestly, uh, her, her she was told her character was going to be on uh, a similar intellectual level as the Doctor, and just turns out to be just. The you know we we kind of joked about it before of let's make everybody coffee. Uh, that's not what she signed on for, and the fact that they actually make a joke about it in this show. In this episode, they make a joke about it. Right at the beginning, they say, "Hey, where's Miss Shaw?" Oh, she went back to Cambridge, and because you don't actually want a scientific equal, you want someone to tell you how great and great and smart you are. Enter and bring you things. And bring you things. Enter Katie Manning as our new companion, Joe Grant. And Joe would, even though this episode is probably not the best for showing it, Joe would become one of the favorite companions in the classic era. A companion that has kept coming back. Like, she came back for the Sarah Jane Adventures. She still comes back and does the audio adventures. So the yeah, I mean the fandom loves her, yeah, and rightfully so. I mean she's she's great. Since it's the terror of the autons, we have to talk about the autons. So uh, if you're a new Who fan, you kind of are familiar with the autons. In fact, they were the very first monster in the very first episode of the revival series with Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper. I'm the doctor. Run for your life. Yep. And what are we running from? Living plastic. Living plastic. Uh, and the Autons were the first monster that the third doctor fought. The, you know, imagine going downtown, walking by the shop, and then the mannequins come to life and try to kill you. This is about 10 years before Kim Cattrall would do the same thing. But it wasn't as attractive. And and a lot more murdery than Kim Cattrall. Although Kim Cattrall murdering people coming to life as a mannequin would make that movie more interesting. Yeah, mannequin mannequin with a bit more murder. 
but but still Hollywood Montrose. <laughs> yeah. Like you still need Hollywood Montrose to just wander around and be awesome <laughs> while Kim Cattrall is going around murdering people. Hollywood would make a great companion. <laughs> yeah. Just Hollywood going around cracking jokes, being amazing, and then Kim Cattrall in the background as an auton just <laughs> laying waste to everything else. I so, need yeah. that movie. Somebody make that movie. <laughs> uh. But yeah, the nesting consciousness, the alien consciousness that comes down to Earth and uh, makes plastic alive and it's dangerous because how many things in our world is made out of plastic even as far as you know, the early 1970s where plastics were becoming more of a thing hey tuesday tuesday yeah what's up got, I, I got i got one word for you mm. plastics plastics mm -hmm. i think that they Got there a little too early on this, and I think knew who did as well. Because if you did this in the era of Funko Pops, the nesting consciousness just becomes like a completely different menace. Can you imagine your average collector with his memorabilia, his wide collection of every action figure of a certain brand and, you know, an entire wall of Funko Pops, all of that coming to life and trying to kill you. I mean, now with the Disney crossover, like, just just think of how many Disney crossover Funko Pops there are now. <laughs> and that branding deal just, like, go into the av average Disney collector's room now. And then just show them, like, just hanging out or whatever. And then it'd be like, danger, there is a Auton attack. And just their entire wall of Funko Pops just comes every to life. Disney, and every Disney adult is dead. Yeah, I mean, I I am super duper dead. Yeah. Uh, between my Between all of my Disney Funko Pops and all of my Fallout bobbleheads i am ridiculously dead uh <laughs> if there is an auton attack the um the thing is though is that they they do some interesting things with it in in this one of you know well what if your phone cord was a living thing what if your child's plastic dolls was a living thing this is also just a few years before chucky yeah you know so they get to the killer doll thing just a couple of years early um they uh what if the plastic flowers in the vase on your table were scary you know because those were the brand new kind of thing in the the 70s and and stuff to have on your your table the idea of the mascot with the big head and then there's that brilliant moment where they take off the mascot head and then there's just the Auton head underneath. Yeah, I mean, 
talk about the Disney crossover. Everyone in Disneyland <laughs> is dead. Those people in those costumes are dead. <laughs> well, but I mean, that is just got to be because there are there are people who have and, you know, we got like Five Nights at Freddy's now and stuff that play off of that fear. There is that there are people who have that that phobia of mascots. Um and mascots can be creepy. You know, a a badly done mascot costume is rife for terror. Um and you've seen them, you know, theme park mascots that are just not done correctly. Yeah. Um and they're they're very they can be very creepy. Um, and of course, there's also the thing of just not knowing who's under there. You know, you know that there's a person under there, but you never know who it is. Um, and so there's a lot of trust with that the person in the the mascot costume is an okay person to be around. You know, that the, the company has vetted them and that they're going to be fine you know um and so there's a legitimate concern to be had there and then doctor who plays with it so wonderfully in this episode because you have all these autons for part of the the master's plan of these people that are handing out these free samples of the plastic flowers as part of the, as the plan escalates. And they're wearing these goofy mascot costumes for the plastics company. And then they get back in the van and they take off the giant heads of the mascots and underneath are the formless mannequin faces of the autons that you see whenever the autons show up. And it's just the creepiest moment. I mean, I mean, even as an adult, you're like, oh, that's just properly creepy. <laughs> I mean, the master's plan of taking over a plastics company so an alien invasion of plastic people can, in can potentially take over the world. Hell of a plan. Yeah, and what I like about it is that the doctor figures it out kind of early, but he's still not able to stop the plan, which I think is even better writing. That's that's better is when I think it's really cool in a story when a writer can set up uh, a hero and a villain who are both smart enough to know what the other is planning, and yet both of them are slick enough that they can't quite stop the other one, you know? <laughs> that yeah. the hero goes, oh, I know exactly where you're going, but I can't stop you in time, you know? So the idea that the that the doctor figures out, like, oh, he's taken the last remnant of the nesting consciousness, which the doctor kind of kept alive from the last time the autons were around because he considered it murder to eradicate it. I mean, because that, yeah, it's it still, is it's, sentient. Yeah. 
the doctor's right. It's it's sentient, but also it's dangerous. And the master figured out a way to come to Earth and steal it. You know, it, and they and and they try to. I mean, they the doctor even questioned it. Why did Unit allow this piece of the nesting consciousness to just be on display in a museum? Yeah, that was that was a a dumb move. But you know. Brigadier isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. He's great at tactical know-how, but scientific know-how, not so much. And also, the Brigadier is... It's an alien thing that most humans would not understand. So most humans looking at it would just be like, oh, neat, thing in a box, cool, you know? And then they would just keep walking. Yeah. I don't think the Brigadier ever just expected another Time Lord to show up and try to steal it. Because he really thinks like that. You know, the Time Lords are like, hey, we won't interfere, so that's why we trapped the Doctor here. So he's not expecting a Time Lord to show up. What a fully That's what functioning... got the last Time Lord in trouble, you know? What a <laughs> like, fully functioning TARDIS with a yeah. working chameleon circuit. Because when the Master arrives, his TARDIS immediately turns into a, a horse car, a horse truck. Yeah, can we can we just talk about how the they they have the Master enter? Because it's both really cool in that it sets up how slick the Master is, but also it's one of the greatest... Uh, budget-friendly ways to have your villain enter. It's a circus. He enters into a circus. Well, not even that, because they could have had him enter anywhere. Mm -hmm. They choose to have him enter into a circus. But we hear the distinctive TARDIS noise off-screen, and then the camera pans over because some, you know, just random dude at the circus hears the TARDIS noise and goes, eh, and we're expecting like, wait a minute, that's in the TARDIS broken? You know, the, why Why is the TARDIS landing? And we turn around and where there wasn't a thing before, there is now this like, you know, horse truck, you know, for transporting horses. And we turn around and coming out the back of it, is the master. And suddenly you realize like, oh, wait a minute. That's not a horse truck. That's a TARDIS. Yep. And that's a chameleon circuit. His actually works unlike the doctors. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not disguised as a police box. It's disguised as, you know, a horse a horse transport truck. Oh my goodness, because it's in a circus, and of course that's just a thing that would be around. We also ah, get, yeah, yeah. We, we we also get right off the bat. We get the the first usage of the master's hypnotic powers. I am the master, and you will obey me. He hypnotizes the owner of the circus to help him break into the museum. And then he hypnotizes the other workers at the plastic factory to do his, to make the things that he wants so the Nest team can take them over. 
Yeah, and I I kind of want to say like shout out to the guy who's playing the the owner of the the plastics factory because this guy is not only the guy who plays the owner of the plastics factory. This guy is Michael Wisher, who is the first guy who will ever play Davros. Hmm. Yeah, he um he will come back in 1975 in Genesis of the Daleks, and he will be Davros. Hmm. Um, but he was uh known for just being in Doctor Who a lot. He he was just Doctor uh, Who recycles a lot of actors. Yeah, especially in this era um we we joke now about there being like you know 15 actors in england it was kind of even worse in this era um and especially on doctor who like you know if if you were just you know uh an actor who was willing to be on doctor who they were like oh do you want to come back and play four more people um do you want steady work (laughs) yeah uh, I mean, look at even even look at even at Nicholas Courtney, who, you know, the Brigadier wasn't even the first character he played on Doctor Who. He played a space cop in the Daleks' master plan. So it's like that's not that they don't, you know, no one's off limit in recycling actors. Some of them become regular characters. Some of them become villains. Some become companions. Some become doctors. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Michael Wisher is so good here as this, uh, guy, Feral. He he falls very quickly under the Master's spell, but then he starts to fight it as the, the story goes on. The Doctor even states that hypnosis cannot make you do something you don't want to do. And I like that they put that in there very early in the story. I believe by episode two, they straight up say this. Hypnosis, even as powerful as the master is, he cannot make anyone do something that they don't want to do. Uh, We see with Joe. He he hypnotizes Joe to blow up unit. She doesn't want to. And the the own conflict in her own mind shuts her body down. Rex is not a bad guy. He just wants to make this business successful. So there's that conflict in him. He is just a much he's just enough of a weenie for the master to take control of his mind, but he's just enough of a good guy that he can fight back against it. Well, at first the the master and I love that the master shows up under the name Colonel Masters. It's not the most original uh, alias he would have, but it works here. <laughs> Yeah, um, and and says that it's like a, a military project or whatever. And so when he hypnotizes him, you know, in the guy's mind, he's like, well, you find out that like his dad owned the company and is just retired or something, but has always been like, you're not really good enough to... Don't, 
run my company or whatever. And if I'll you don't run it right, I'll come, it right. I'll come back and yeah. take over the company again. You know, so you find out that he's always been this kind of like harassed guy by his dad and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So he wants daddy's approval and he wants to prove himself and everything. So when this military guy, quote unquote, shows up and says like, oh, big military contract, we're going to make a lot of money for your company. He goes along with it because, yeah, that'll show the old man. But as it goes on and he starts realizing that there's something wrong here and that people are getting hurt and everything, he starts to fight back. And it's it's really interesting to see kind of where his line is, because interestingly, his line is not the murder of his father. <laughs> he is very pleased when the master is like, oh, look at this big, comfy plastic chair that I have created. Why don't you come sit down in it and let it kill you? And Death by you, chair. Yeah, it's like death by inflatable chair. Um, it's, it's, it's probably one of the most weirdest deaths in Doctor Who. It's death by plastic chair. I don't know. The, the almost death that we see Joe have by the weird plastic daffodil and then you find out that that's how like a bunch of people off screen have been dying suffocating that was pretty weird Mm -hmm. well the 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 father here dies by suffocation just by chair and i gotta hand it to him this is the best acting using an inflatable object since bella lugosi in Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> I mean, this guy is like grabbing this thing and pretending it is strangling him to death. And I mean, it is that, such great acting with an inanimate object. That or the doctor choking himself with the phone wire. Oh, that is such a brilliant him wrapping himself with the phone wire pretending that it is choking him yeah is so funny um because like pertwee just goes all out on that pertwee started out as a comedic actor and you can kind of see it in that performance yeah rex rex uh, Farrell, i mean he wouldn't be that choked up about his dad dying Let's be real. Like, the old man's gone now. It really is my company to run. But, yeah. the But he does have a line, and that line crosses, and you see him, that com- those moments of conflicting, no, we're not going to do this. No, we're going to do this. I must obey my master. I must obey my master. No, no, no. And, you know, it's, it's great moments in that. It shows that the character isn't a bad guy. He's just in a bad situation. Yeah, when he starts feeling that innocent people are getting killed, you know, I, I think he feels like his his father is probably guilty of something. Uh, yeah. But when he starts realizing that the the master is intending to, to kill just like random people, uh, then he he starts trying to to fight it 
more strongly. Uh, but we have we have a lot of early bits of how evil the master is going to be because at first we get the just the hypnotic thing and that's you're like well okay that's kind of evil because he's taking away people's autonomy you know but once he gets into the um the radio tower mm-hmm. and he gets up into the radio tower and there's just like one guy that is just not of any use to him and in his way and he just like shoves the guy off the radio tower yeah we see him fall and and there's like no reason for him to just like murder that guy like he he... could have tied him up or he could have hypnotized him to go away and forget because he does that later to joe like okay walk away and forget you even saw me here we know that's in his power but He's just such an evil dude that he's just like, oh, like he, you're not needed for my plan, yeet. Like, <laughs> he didn't even use the TCE. He just yeeted the dude. Yeah, it's like he doesn't even care if they find the body. Like, there is another guy that he he does. He turns him into, like, a little action figure and shoves him in a lunchbox. <laughs> like, he even hides the evidence there. And that's such a great thing because it's the first time we see it used and he shrinks him down and he puts him in his own lunchbox. He puts the guy in his own lunchbox and leaves him there. And the doctor finds him later like in his own Tupperware. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's so cruel and weird. So many little things like that. But we have to talk about the goofiest moment in the whole episode, which is where, like, Time Lord John Steed just shows up to, like, yeah, be the, like, hey, Doctor. Apparently, there are some Time Lords who don't even need a TARDIS. You hear the TARDIS sound, but he's just appearing in, 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 in midair. And, oh, I miscalculated where you were, Doctor. Oh, by yeah. the way, uh, your old buddy, the master, uh, yeah, he's he, he's here, and and you need to take care of him now. Yeah, that whole thing was just we wanted to use green, uh, blue screen again, mm-hmm. which I thought was funny. And the guy shows up legit, looking like John Steed entered the upper class twin of the year competition. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what that outfit was, but. Well, he said he's, he says he's incognito. I guess they just saw 60s, 70s British television. Oh, well, I can look like this John Steed guy. <laughs> they saw Monty Python was what they saw. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but yeah, the dude just shows up and he's like, oh, we thought we'd tell you that the master's here. Um, bit of exposition for the audience. We know that the Master and you have a history, and that the Master is smarter than you because he's got a more advanced degree, and that you're probably still salty about that. But even though we punished you for coming to Earth and uh, mucking about, we're not going to do anything about the Master. We're just going to tell you he's here and see what happens. 
Bye. And then he just pops in to say, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he just shows up and be like, yeah, we thought we'd tell you that your friend of me's here. Have fun with that. Okay, bye. <laughs> the Time Lords are such dicks. I'm so glad they're all dead. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again. Uh... Yeah, speaking of, let's let's talk about our first scene with the doctor in this in this uh serial where uh yeah the doctor is trying to get around his exile by trying to repair the TARDIS. Apparently the TARDIS's dematerialization circuit is um I believe the word is knackered. <laughs> it's, it's forked. The, it's forked. <laughs> It doesn't work. I mean, if you go back to the final episode of the War Games, you see two Time Lords mucking about under the console of the TARDIS. So who knows what faulty parts they put into that thing. And it was already faulty to begin with. Yeah. And it was already really old. That's the other thing is, like, they didn't steal a top-of-the-line TARDIS when they stole one. They, They just, they stole, like... Basically, the TARDIS version of a Model T. Type 40 TARDIS. Yeah, I mean, Type 40 TARDIS was kind of already old and busted. Like, no offense, girl, but, you know. It's the gremlin of of TARDISes. Yeah, when they they stole the TARDIS, it was already an older model TARDIS that nobody used anymore, which is kind of why they figured that maybe nobody would come after them. They were hoping that nobody would come out. Like, maybe if we steal the old version nobody wants anymore, we'll get away with it. Didn't really work. But, yeah. So, like, they're already kind of breaking an old and busted TARDIS anyway. Yeah, he's bringing this piece out. He's trying to fix advanced alien technology with Earth technology. It goes about as well as you can expect. Just put some duct tape on it and it'll be fine. I mean, <laughs> like, he tries to, like, that. that's that opening scene. He's, we, see, we hear him singing, he's working on the TARDIS, and then just explosion. So, like, the previous story, Inferno, was done just because, you know, the entire point of that was the Doctor tries to repair the TARDIS, it goes wonky, and he ends up in an alternate universe. So he's still trying to fix, like, all that aside, he's still trying to fix the TARDIS and failing miserably. Yeah. The the thing is, though, is that you're, you're like, oh, he, he comes out of the, you know, of the back and he's singing. He's not just singing. He's singing, I don't want to set the world on fire. Before an explosion, which is itself and, is a, and, a trope. And then it blows up. Yeah. <laughs> but... I mean, I I guess the Doctor's a Fallout fan. I mean, respect. I mean, but... it's time travel. He he probably actually went to that timeline at one point. I mean, considering that at least two of the Fallout games has a mod where you can play as the Doctor in the Fallout universe. <laughs> and the fact that there's about to be a massive Fallout mod where you can play in London... And if I can't play as the Doctor in Fallout London, I am going to be so mad. <laughs> Mod makers, get your act together. Synchronize those two mods. 
Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, also, two of the uh, previous doctors are voice actors in that Fallout London mod. So, yeah. Uh, what? I like Fallout. I like Doctor Who. So sue me. Yeah, I mean, to the point where where later on where they actually make it to the circus and what's the doctor's first thought i'm going to go into the master's tardis and steal his dematerialization circuit and use it on my own but as you said the doctor stole a very old tardis and it seems that the master is a more advanced model of tardis so while the circuits look the same they don't function the same and it don't work. Yeah. Like, he puts it in his TARDIS. It go boom. He's still stuck there. Uh, what does this say about the Doctor? The Nest team, the Autons, are still part of the... Still doing their little invasion. And the Doctor's first thought is, let me get the hell out of here. <laughs> well, I got the thing this part. is, is that... If, if he gets the the part he can move around more freely and you know yeah it doesn't mean automatically that he's leaving the area it just means like hey i've got more options now on how to defeat this thing mm. uh, we we see that in in other things where the doctor gets in the tardis and maneuvers somewhere else and then you hear like the TARDIS appear and the doctor shows up to save the day you know we we have this whole kind of convoluted plan that the master has about using the autons in various ways and some of them are very fascinating and very terrifying in fact, they were so terrifying that this serial in particular was brought up in government, you know, debates, like in in Parliament in the UK, um, uh, in debates about children's programming and what is how scary is too scary and you know what the bbc should be allowed to do and show um in relation to to children and particularly two scenes from this serial kept being brought up one being the fact that there is a bit where the doctor and Joe are taken by policemen and then the policeman pulls off their face and it's revealed that, that they're really autons underneath. Uh, because the master has the ability to make face masks. Uh, yeah, apparently he does. Cause we, we'll get to that part later. But, uh, they, you know, they thought that that might scare children and make them not trust policemen and, you know, which 
you know. Uh, but fair uh, enough. The other the other thing is that this one has a scary doll in it, but the doll is meant to look scary. Like all the adults look at it and go, like, why would you? Why would you want this? This doesn't look like a doll you would give to children. No one in their right mind would give this to a child uh, because it it looks like this little devil doll or something. Uh, it's kind of reddish and has grotesque teeth and a scary face. And, you know, it's it's not the sort of thing you would typically buy for a child. We just discussed Ant-Man. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Most people would not. That's why I said typically. <laughs> um. But so all the adults remark, and it's never given to a child in the course of the show. No, that was, I mean, it's it's just there to a high rank in, in the company here. Here, you know, the master throws the doll in their back seat, and that's what kills them. Yeah, it's it's very specifically used by the master as a assassin. Mm. It, it's just a, a small plastic object that the master can used to eliminate enemies um so he first gives it to somebody working at the company who gets a little suspicious of him who he can't hypnotize and he puts it in the guy's car and says like oh take this home and see what you think about it it's a new product we're thinking of putting out and the guy takes it home and when he gets home with it it comes to life and kills him and then later it comes to life and tries to kill Joe. And well, like I said, you know, the, the master cannot make someone do something that they don't want to do. So the guy was headstrong saying, yeah, we're not going to go with any of your ideas for, for this company. He was really headstrong on that. <laughs> yeah, he thought it was far too scary to give to a child. Um and of course, that that became the debate in Parliament is is showing this scary doll killing people, even though when it all you see it do is come to life and start moving around, you never actually see it kill anybody on screen. Yeah, all the killing is happening off screen. But, but the idea that this doll that looks kind of scary can come to life and move around on its own. I guess that's what they were deeming too terrifying for, for kids. The, the interesting thing about this serial is that there's, there's no children shown in this serial. In fact, most, most Doctor Who serials and episodes even now don't actually have kids in them, even though it's a family program. I mean, Doctor Who even plays into that, you know, they've taken pride in being the show that makes kids hide behind their couch from the monsters. Yeah. But the thing is, is I've always kind of wondered, like, in the in the old series, I I never really found too many things that I thought even as a child I would have found that that freaky. The bit about taking off the the mascot head and there being like the, the Alton head underneath might have gotten me as a young enough child but I don't think anything else in this episode would have and ironically that was not one of the things the government was that worried about 
There are one or two things in the new series that I think if I had seen it as a young enough child, it might have gotten me. I think the idea of the Weeping Angels might have gotten I was me. Gonna, I was going to mention that. I mean, Doctor Who excels at that. And Vashta Narada, I think, would have gotten me as a kid. Yeah, I mean, Doctor Who excels at taking the mundane and making it scary. Mannequin gummies. I think the new show does. I'm not even sure that... I mean, maybe just the vague concept of the Autons. Like, what if a mannequin was... But I think we all kind of just have that, that fear at the back of our brain... As a human, I think everybody has walked past a mannequin and gone like, boy, wouldn't it be creepy if that thing jumped out at me? Or a stone statue or that one thing you can see out of the corner of your eye, but when you turn around, there's nothing there. Or did I just see my shadow move weirdly? You know, that that kind of thing. And I think the... That's when Doctor Who gets you because I think we've all had that thought and I think Doctor Who just goes like, yeah, you've had that thought. That's an alien. You know? Mm-hmm. And I think just having an, a name for that alien kind of makes it a little creepy. Like, you're you're no longer just like, oh, I'm, I'm the crazy one because I've thought like well what if that statue came to life now it's a weeping angel you know like it it, there's something both validating and also absolutely terrifying of realizing like oh i'm not the weird one other people have had that experience too other people walk by statues and go like wait what if that came to life and attacked me right now? <laughs> you know, like, did that statue move? <laughs> yeah, did that statue move? You know? Or what if what if my shadow could eat me or something? You know, mm-hmm. it's like, or don't you think that doll looks creepy? You know? Like, and I think all of us have had that. There's just something in our lizard brain <laughs> that has these feelings. And realizing that everybody has kind of had that feeling, yes, it's validating because you're like, okay, we're we're all human. We we've all just whatever weird thing makes us human also makes us just have these random thoughts about you know these same things. But then it also makes you start to wonder, like, okay, but why do we have that though? Are there really weeping angels? You know, is there like something in our past that's reminding us that like, you know, and then it starts to become like a weird conspiracy theory, you know, idea in your brain or something. Um, And then I think that's kind of what gets you like, well, we wouldn't be afraid of it if it wasn't real, you know, Um, which, of course, is not true. But then it just kind of feels like it is um and i think that that's when doctor who gets is at its best you know when it taps into those things that we all kind of have especially as children like all children have that point in their lives where like 
you have to make sure that all your limbs are in the bed. Cause if it hangs over the bed, the monster will get you. Mm-hmm. And then if Dr. Who ever comes along, it goes like, well, the reason you do that is because there's an alien that's called whatever. And the doctor has to fight it. Then we're going to go like, Doctor Who is really scary right now because it came up with a name for that thing we all do, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's when when Doctor Who is really, really great, you know? But I don't think that Doctor Who is particularly any more scary than any other show. It's just that it has a particular thing that because it's a show families watch together... It's started to kind of when the writers are at their best, they've started to go like, well, what if we just do an episode about that, that weird thing we all have? That weird phobia that everybody has. <laughs> yeah. And and st- there are other shows that did it, too. There's lots of things that like X-Files did that's kind of the same. I think if you ever have a show that kind of dips into that sort of horror, you know, genre idea then it's it's gonna hit on that once or twice if it's any good at what it does um but i think just because doctor who has been on the air for 60 years it's done it a little a little more than the average show um star trek has done it once or twice as well uh, which is kind of weird to think, but there, there's, there's one or two Star Trek episodes that everybody goes like, well, you know, now I have a phobia because of Star Trek, but you know, mm. I mean, the thing is, the master almost wins here. As you said, he tried. The doctor tries to stop him and can't. And at the end, where he actually succeeds in getting to that military telescope. To send the signal to the nesting in space that, hey, you, you can invade now. The doctor straight up tells him, you really think they're going to spare you? Like, they're going to take out all living life in, in, on this planet and they're going to spare you? Yeah, that's that's kind of the only thing that stops the Master is the Master has not thought through one part of his plan, which is that he has become a collaborator with a species that is a plastic supremacist species for like for lack of a better term. And we have talked multiple times on what happens to collaborators. Yeah. He he thinks he's gonna be the exception. And the, the Shirley, doctor The Shirley rule. The, the Shirley exception, yeah, yeah, is that I'm the one that helped them. Surely they'll make an exception for me. And the doctor points out to him, they want to destroy all life. Congratulations, idiot. You are also life. <laughs> and the master is the one person that the doctor ever comes across that is smart enough to realize, oh, crap, you're right. Hadn't thought of that. Oopsie. <laughs> uh, my bad. Let's uh, defeat the alien, shall we? And so they do. That, that's the only thing that stops the Master in this situation is 
the master, which I find rather cool. Yeah, so he allows the doctor to send a signal that will send all of the Nestine on Earth back into space. Of course, the master uses this opportunity to escape. But uh, he doesn't get very far. He gets to the to the truck of the plastic company. They tell him to give up. He walks out. They shoot him dead. But And um, boy, does Delgado milk that death scene. Can we give it up for Delgado in this death scene? Yeah, he just takes all the shots and he falls and he flops over. Part of his wig is falling off. Yeah, they they are. I mean, this is like a peck and paw scene. The way Delgado is acting it. I mean, there you don't really see any blood, but he acts it as if he is expecting like squibs to just spray blood everywhere. You feel every bullet go into his body. He flops around like a fish. He does a flip like. <laughs> this guy is Shatner levels of milk in that death like I said, scene. To the point where, like, whatever whatever hair piece they have on him to cover up his bald spot almost falls off. I mean, I I loved that bit so much. I was applauding in my chair watching that. Oh, so good. So good. Chef's kiss. No notes. But uh he's a time lord. There's no regeneration. Um, Turns out... The doctor is confused. Like, because he's a Time Lord. He should be regenerating right now. Why isn't he regenerating right now? Um, There is a common belief that the Delgado Master was the 13th incarnation. Personally, I believe he's the 12th. We don't have time to go into specifics, but whatever incarnation of the match you believe he is, that is up to you, and that's perfectly fine. But he should have some sort of... Something should be happening. And you see uh, the doctor kind of scratch his chin like, wait a minute, I told you not to trust him. And it turns out uh, this is... Um, this is the untimely end of Mr. Farrell because he's wearing a, a, a master mask. He tried to fight it and one last obey to his master. That is like, that's a, such a sad end to that character. Yeah. And the but, thing is, is that you do wonder, though, if at the end he was trying to fight it because he had gone along with too much, you know? Yeah. But the the master escapes. He ends up taking the plastic truck and he gets out of there. But he's stuck on Earth because while the master did eventually take back one of the dematerialization circuits, he took the broken one from the Doctor's TARDIS. So um, he's stuck on Earth just as much as the Doctor is. And as we stated, he becomes the main antagonist for the rest of the season. So, uh, yeah, we'll be seeing a lot of the Master in this era of Doctor Who. Which uh, the Doctor seems to be uh, very excited for. He's looking forward to tangling with the Master once again. It's a great teaser for whatever comes next, you know? Yeah. You as the audience are looking forward to that happening as well. 
True. I mean, I want to see these two clash, and we do see them clash over and over and over again, even as recently as the final episode of Jodie Whittaker. So they yeah. will they will keep clashing over and over again. Tom Baker and Anthony Anley, Paul McGann and Eric Roberts, uh, John Slim and David Tennant, Peter Capaldi and Michelle Gomez. Yes, Sasha Dewan and Jodie Whittaker. It it these two are destined to do this forever. <laughs> these two characters. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really an interesting dynamic because like you said, it's it's based on that nice Holmes Moriarty thing. But by now it has almost overtaken that in a way, or if not overtaken it, it's at least become as iconic mm. you know in in the sense of if you if you want to to talk about how to do a good hero villain story um we talked about reusing actors and um they do a, a similar ga- a similar Thing that we talked about last time we were talking about Doctor Who, Tomb of the Cyberman with Toberman. We have a strong man from the circus that also is a person, is a black man that doesn't talk a lot and just does strong man things. And it's the same actor. Roy Stewart, who plays a strong man in this in this in this story, also played Toberman in Tomb of the Cybermen. And it's essentially the same character. Yeah, that was that weirded me out too. And I was like, why, why are we doing this again? And then you pointed out to me that it was the same actor, and I was like, okay, that makes it even weirder. Can we please not do this again? Yeah. So, and and that seems to be the only two. Doctor Who episodes he ever showed up in, and he plays basically the same trope. And I, oh, I do not like it. Be better, Doctor Who. And yeah. I feel bad for the actor because it seems like he kept playing that character in a lot of things, including a James Bond movie. Typecasting. Ugh. I mean, I'm I'm not necessarily against typecasting because there are some people who are just perfect for that type and if you can get a a type that works for you sometimes you know you can turn that into a very lucrative career um ask christopher walken but the uh it's not really that great when it's like a weird racist trope so I, I, I hope that guy had a good life and made a lot of money off of it anyway. Yeah. So let's 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 tell what happened after this because we have Joe Joe Grant would stay on for two seasons of the show, leaving at the end of the next season uh, in the episode "The Green Death," where she would become an environmentalist. 
uh, joining up with a uh, a fellow environmentalist named Cliff Jones. The two fall in love, and she decides to leave unit, leave the doctor, and just go around the world with Cliff, uh, trying to make the environment a better place. Considering how the environment is in 2023, Joe's still making trying to make that happen. Yeah, but what we what we know of her later in the series, she stayed happily married, ended up having seven children, twelve grandchildren, continued her travels. So um, yeah, and they yeah. almost they almost uh, turned the Sarah Jane Adventures after Elizabeth Sladen's passing. Uh, there was heavy talk of turning it into the Joe Grant Adventures, which I kind of wish they did. I mean, it would have been nice to have like a really cool pro environmentalist Doctor Who spinoff. And just recently, like a few weeks. Uh, before we recorded this, they released kind of a short film with with Katie Manning as Joe uh, to promote the the new uh, the new uh, season nine uh, Doctor Who Blu-ray set of the Pertwee episodes, and uh, they put a lot of work into that for a short film just to advertise a Blu-ray set because you get lore <laughs> like she's going to. Uh, sea devil nest to protect them while they while they procreate. We find out that Kate uh, that Joe Grant inherited the sonic lipstick from Sarah Jane Smith. Oh, yeah. So if if you haven't seen that little short film yet, uh, again, it's it's a commercial for a Blu-ray set, but they didn't have to go that hard on it. That's kind of sweet. Yeah. It was interesting, though, that one of her, that uh, when she showed up in uh, the Sarah Jane Adventures, the the part of her grandson, Santiago, was played by the same guy that played Iron Fist in the Netflix series. (laughs) Yeah, Finn Jones. So... Uh, Of course, we would, uh, since I didn't mention her... Uh, after Joe left, the doctor would get a new assistant, Sarah Jane Smith, who would go on to become one of the most popular companions of the classic era. As for the doctor, uh, he would meet his end in the in the serial Planet of Spiders, where in an attempt to save just Sarah Jane and save the world, save the universe, he ends up going into a big vat of radiation, sacrificing himself, regenerating into Tom Baker, the fourth doctor who would end up becoming the longest serving doctor in the show's history at, uh, so yeah, we have that to look forward to, which is going to make choosing a fourth doctor serial very hard because there's a lot of good stories there. (laughs) We have to pick one. Yeah, so uh, come back next time we talk about Doctor Who to uh, see what we've finally settled on, because we're still debating it as of this recording. Yeah. Uh, Unit still around in the the current show. We now have the leader of Unit being uh, Brigadier's daughter, Kate Stewart. That lineage is still going strong. So next time we talk Doctor Who, 
Next month, we will be talking about the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker. So uh, come back next month for that. But as of next week, um, after over 40 years of waiting, we are finally getting the sequel we've all been waiting for, History of the World Part 2. In honor of that, we are going to go back to the original movie, Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1. It has been a long time since we talked about a Mel Brooks movie on this podcast, and I'm really looking forward to it. Yep. Can't wait. Filing under more things you didn't know Disney owned now. <laughs> the jig is up and gone. So come back next week for History of the World Part 1, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it. If you want to help the fight for human rights in the U.S., the American Civil Liberties Union works to protect constitutional rights for all Americans. Their website is aclu.org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues.